Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives, brought to you today from Women's Declaration International. Um, today we have Speaking Freely, part two, by written by Julia Penelope, and it's going to be discussed by Julia Long. So welcome, Julia, and over to you. Thanks very much and uh, hello everyone. And uh, once again, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm gonna get straight into the book because last time I did spend quite a lot of time talking about uh, Julia Penelope. So if anyone uh, wants to find out more, miss that and wants to find out more about Julia Penelope, that's all in um, you know the session from last time. But I want to get straight into the book because basically I ran out of time. Last time, so I don't want that to happen again. Um, so this book, Speaking Freely, Unlearning the Lies of the Father's Tongues, um, is a book, uh, um, in Penelope's own words, is a book about how patriarchal thought controls and limits the ways we live in the world. It's an analysis of how the structure of English developed to perpetuate men's descriptions of what our lives are like and what the world is like. Um, and she coins the term uh, Patriarchal Universe of Discourse, or PUD, to name the version of, um, inverted commas, reality uh, created and naturalised by patriarchal language. And I was very interested to see in the chat last time that um, I, I had no idea of, of this, that, but apparently in uh, some places, uh, PUD, I don't even know how you pronounce it, whether it's PUD or PUD or whatever, um, has has been used as a slang term for penis, which I had no idea of. And it's obviously an in-joke that uh, Julia Penelope made in the book. And uh, it was entirely wasted on me originally. So um, so I'm really glad to have um, had that added to my knowledge, uh, which has definitely enhanced um, my enjoyment of, of the book. So uh, what Penelope says very early on um, is that language isn't just individual words with a with their semantic content um it's a whole system of rules and she says that um via both the semantic content of words and by the syntactic um arrangement of words like the word order the grammar all of the kind of rules of language that um that english proscribes the boundaries of the lives that women might imagine and will ourselves to live so that's um, how she kind of sets out her stall right at the beginning of the book. Um, uh, I wanted to bring up a few questions that, uh, if we have time, that maybe some things that maybe we might, might want to uh, talk about at the end, or I don't know, women might well um, talk about some of this in the chat as we go along. But I just wanted to make a case as to why I think this book is so important today. I mean, obviously, it, uh, the analysis is still really um, necessary because women are still oppressed by men and patriarchal language is um, a key instrument of that oppression. But also, particularly at the moment, as we're all aware, there's a lot of debate, um, a, a lot of use of the term free speech. There's lots of discussion around this, this term. And I think that while um, 
we see this term being used that it shows some uh, kind of understanding about um, the relationship between language and power, but I and it shows that that is important. But I think often the ways in which we see this term being used and the way that this idea of free speech is used to support often really opposing agendas, um, I think the understanding can be can be quite superficial. And I think um, this book, obviously with its title, Speaking Freely, it's all about this the ideas of speech and language and ideas of freedom and liberation. I think it's got so much to contribute to enhance our understanding of these um, free speech debates. And particularly, you know, we see this idea of this phrase has become quite popular, um, compelled speech. So, you know, the idea of if we are, um, you know, in, for example, in the workplace where uh, there are policies around, I don't know, use of pronouns in term, um, relation to gender identity rather than sex, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and we might talk about this as an example of compelled speech. I, I think it, it suggests that before all of this, uh, you know, trans, transgender um, uh, uh, agenda on, on language or the effects of transgender ideology on language, um, it kind of creates the notion that we previously had this, you know, language that entirely served our purposes and that and we are free to use language as we wish, as if we are the kind of pure authors of our own linguistic destiny and languages at our disposal, at our disposal, um, rather than as Penelope, I think so convincingly uh, demonstrates in her book that the language that we use often without bringing this really to consciousness um, can really serve male interests against our, you know, our own intentions. So I think she takes, you know, she has so much to say that is relevant and sheds a lot of light on these ideas of free speech versus compelled speech, um, etc. Um, and I also think she has a lot to contribute where, again, I think one of the things we see a lot at the moment are in um, these appeals to actually what feminists would have always been quite critical of in terms of patriarchal authority. Um, the idea of kind of a, objective science or um, the enlightenment or even the idea of like the dictionary, these ideas of um, these sources of authority as being kind of uncritically used to support feminist arguments, whereas historically feminists would have been very critical of notions of scientific objectivity or the enlightenment or, you know, even the, you know, the creation of dictionaries as authorities. So, um, so I, I think she just has so much uh, light to shed on all of these things, and um, and I think she reminds us of the crucial role of language in shaping our perceptions, and actually, ultimately, then, in some regards, some important regards, actually shaping reality. Because I think there's been a bit of a an inclination to because of the whole kind of postmodern. Um, uh whatever uh sort of postmodernist um discourse around language that there's been a bit of an inclination to throw the baby out with the bathwater and to dismiss the ideas of language creating uh reality or shaping reality is 
kind of dismissed as all this all postmodern nonsense. But I think Penelope reminds us that actually language does shape reality in really important ways. And we can see that happening at the moment, that as uh, language is being changed, then it, it shapes uh, people's perception and it can then become enshrined in legislation. And then it actually does really affect our experiences and our kind of social reality in the world. So again, I think for all of those reasons, I think the book is so, um, so relevant and important today. So I think I spoke last time a bit about um, uh, Penelope's assumptions at the um, the way she kind of sets out the the premises of the book and her assumptions sort of right from the start. So I'm just going to say a little bit by way of reminder um, as to what her um, sort of basic uh, point of view is and her sort of uh, assumptions underlying the the analysis that she gives us. And she says, our um, our point of view, our perceptions, our consciousness determine and limit how we describe events, objects and people. Um, PUD, the Patriarchal Universe of Discourse, constructs the world as men perceive it. It is a, um, a male idealised conceptual framework that defines the boundaries of, of sense for us. Um, it dictates which statements kind of make sense to us and which statements we describe as nonsense. Um, and she says that the linguistic choices we make re reveal much about our assumptions. And why is she, um, why has she spent, you know, she by the time she wrote this book, I think she spent a couple of decades, um, you know, working on this. And she says, I've written Speaking Freely because I want to change the world. Um, when I talk about structures in the English language as pieces of the patriarchal universe of discourse that coerce us to perceive ourselves as participants in that universe, I'm assuming that the prevailing descriptions of the world are inaccurate and the world so described is not the best of all possible worlds. I'm assuming that we, we women, want a better world to live in and I'm assuming that we're capable of unlearning patriarchal assumptions and values and are equally capable of creating different descriptions um, of the world. So that's what the book is setting out to, um, to help us to do. So just again, a quick recap of the outline of the book. Um, the book is arranged across 11 chapters um, the early chapters um, focus on the historical development of the English language. And I want to return to a couple of things which I think I skimmed over last time that I think are really worth spending a bit of time on because they're just absolutely fascinating. So I'm going to spend a bit of time looking at um, some elements of that historical development of the English language. Um, then the middle chapters, then in chapter three, she sets out the, um, she outlines what she means by the patriarchal universe of discourse. And then in, in the middle chapters, she looks at the ways in which um, uh, the semantic content of words, the semantic meaning of words um, are 
are um, the ways in which those um, are used in this PUD to uh, subordinate and marginalize women. So she looks at the subordination, subordination and marginal marginalization of, of women in English and in some other language uh, through and through the semantic content of language. And then in the later chapters, and this is what I want to um, spend a bit more time on in, you know, in this session, in the later chapters, she looks at the role of syntax in naturalizing and reinforcing patriarchal ways of thinking. So she looks there particularly at things like grammar and word order to look at how they also serve to subordinate women and to um, reinforce patriarchal ways of thinking. And I think um, that probably in terms of uh, feminist linguistics, feminist analysis of language, maybe historically we're all a bit more familiar with the semantic content elements rather than the syntax. And I think it's an absolute strength of Penelope's work that she looks um, so forensically at syntax and makes, I think, really compelling arguments and illustrates how they how very, very standard uh, grammatical for, uh, uh, constructs serve to um, serve male interests and um, uh, and act against women's interests. So I want to spend more time um, on, on those later chapters. So, okay then. So to go back then to some of this history, so she begins in the first chapter, she begins by looking at, it's obviously a bit of a thumbnail sketch, but she begins by looking at the, the history of, of the different influences and invasions uh, on the um, on the development of the English language from around about the fifth century. So she looks at things like the, you know, the Germanic influence from the early Anglo-Saxon tribes, the um, Scandinavian invasions and the influence of Old Norse on the development of the English language, and then also Norman French from the Norman conquest and Latin. So I wanted to go back. I think I mentioned this in the last session but it's so interesting I thought it's worth having a look in a bit more detail at what she says about the um the influence of uh old Norse on pronouns because obviously pronouns are such a such a, a topic at the moment in terms of our language and our free speech and um compelled speech etc um, and often I do find it a bit frustrating that whole questions of language and power get reduced to just this question of pronouns without looking at pronouns within the wider context of like how they function within, you know, all the other kind of um, issues that are of concern to, to feminists about language. But um, so what what Penelope says about the influence of Old Norse on the development of pro pronouns that she talks about the third person singular, which we, you know, um, in terms of a bit of basic grammar about pronouns, pronouns 
are the nouns, uh, are the words that stand in place of a noun to refer to, to refer to that noun and to save us from endlessly repeating nouns over and over again uh, within language. So the pronouns are, you know, within English, I, uh, singular ones are I, you, and then third person singular would be she, he, or it. And in Old English, the third person singular, um, the ones where we now have uh, he and she, sounded very similar. They were, um, they both sounded quite like he. I don't even know how you pronounce these, but something like heyo and hie, something like that, which um, uh, which referred, uh, uh, which had the sort of sex distinction of um, uh, he and she. So I'm just going to read what Penelope says about this change in pronouns because it it really, I think, is very fascinating in relation to the uh, attempts to change pronouns uh, today in terms of uh, sex pronouns. So um, she says, the, um, after the Scandinavian invasions, she says the newly arrived Scandinavian speakers changed the old English pronoun system in important ways. And she says of special interest, is the loss of the native Old English female third person singular pronoun heo, I don't know if that's exactly how you use it, it's H-E-O, um, and the acquisition of, um, she calls it a maximally distinctive form. I don't entirely know what she means by that, but it's definitely, it's got a greater distinction in how you say it than the um, pronoun for he. And that is, Shio, um, and she also gives other spellings of show, she, and she. And we can obviously then see how this has come to um, indicate, uh, this has come to be yeah, what we now are familiar with as she. And she says, um, and this comes from a still unidentifiable um, source. But what she says is that prior to this influence of the Old Norse, the previous forms of what we now have as he and she, this he or and here, she says, um, the two, these two pronouns had started to become indistinguishable because, um, because just the way that language works um, in terms of uh, common usage, we tend to, you know, shorten words or, um, pronounce them in a you know a sort of quicker way or a less formal kind of way and so these here and here had started to just sound quite similar as he and and she says at this stage um speakers of english might have opted for a native generic pronoun he but they passed up the opportunity for reasons now lost to history and various pronunciations with this sh sound um, gradually drifted south from northern Britain to replace the original Old English here. And she says that this, we don't really know um, quite why this happened, but that um, it's been talked about by linguistics, by sorry, uh, uh, linguists as being the result of 
exceptional causes being um, being at work. So, um, and the reason they think of, uh, of this development as being down to exceptional causes is because linguists regard um, si pronominal systems or systems of pronouns to be cl closed in inverted commas um, among the properties, uh, so that they are among the properties of language that are most resistant to replacement or alteration. So what she's saying is that historically, um, linguists have understood pronouns to be very resistant to change. Other aspects of language tends, you know, in some, you know, some features of language can change very quickly. Um, and certainly we see through different kinds of usage, different kinds of influence, language obviously is not static, it changes all the time. But pronouns were seen as being closed, as being very resistant to change. So I thought that was extremely interesting, um, given the way in which what we have at the moment is a dizzyingly kind of accelerated a change in pronoun usage that is a complete departure from all the historic ways in which those pronouns have been used to refer to, um, you know, referred to biological sex previously. And um, uh, she says uh, a, a, um, a linguist called Otto Jesperson, writing in 1964, um, remarked that loss and change in personal and demonst demonstrative pronouns are, are infrequent and that only extraordinary circumstances could be responsible for the changes in English pronouns. Um, I don't know if it's me, but the chat has gone really quiet. So I don't know if I've totally lost everyone here. Is it might I, maybe it's just I can't see it, but it might be. Um, I hope I haven't I haven't lost people with all this discussion of pronouns. But the point that Penelope makes, and that I thought was really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I just wanted if, if yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> just wanted if I'd totally lost people there. Um, but yes, the point that Penelope makes and that others have made is that um, pronouns tend not to change. So isn't that absolutely fascinating to see within the last, I don't know, not even 10 years, the last probably around five years um, or so, the way in which there has been in, um, uh, in Jesperson's word, exceptional causes or what um, Penelope describes as extraordinary circumstances that have had been so astonishingly successful in Try in attempting to change our pronouns, and we can think of what I see as absolutely um, corporate bullying, like the bullying of employees to either put nonsense pronouns into um, email signatures, or to respect the nonsense pronouns that um, that other colleagues might wish to to use in theirs, um, and so we can see that. Not only are we in a kind of a situation of exceptional um, exceptional causes, 
um, but also the ways in which this is being enacted with um, the level of force and punishment behind it to make sure that we that we um, um, uh, well to try to ensure that we adhere to these things. Um, so I just thought that was so interesting. And I think it's also interesting the, the way that she, according to Penelope, and obviously I'm not a scholar of, you know, all these uh, things in the way that she was, um, but I have, uh, have uh, you know, no reason to doubt her scholarship that she says the um, that we actually the old English could actually have gone on to develop a sex neutral pronoun there um, rather than to adopt the distinct kind of she and he. So I think that's a really interesting point, but um, I don't know. I think it probably would have, they would have gained some sort of distinction at some point. Um, yeah, I, I can't really see how that would have endured um, even without the Scandinavian um, influence, but it's interesting that at that point it looked like it could um, it could have gone into a sort of sex neutral pronoun. And the other thing, just referring forward a bit in the book, again making this point about um, about the sort of resistance of pronouns to the usual processes of linguistic um, change and development. Um, sort of fast forward, uh, you know, several um, uh, several centuries to the eighty to an eighteen fifty Act of Parliament. This again, I thought was worth drawing attention to in terms of um, the question of uh, pronouns and the ways in which pronouns, uh, the usage of pronouns, have been um, sort of steered to serve men's interests that it was actually, a, there was actually an act of parliament in 1850, smack bang in the middle of the, um, the 19th century, um, that made into law the use of um, the masculine, uh, or the, well, in linguistic terms, it's usually called masculine, I think the, the male pronoun, the pronoun he, um, there was an act of parliament that decreed um, that the I'll read it out um, an act for shortening the language used in acts in other acts of parliament that in all acts words importing the masculine gender shall be deemed taken to include females and the singular to include the, include the plural and the plural the singular etc etc so what this act of parliament did was to enshrine in legislation the use of the word he as supposedly representing uh, women and men together. So I had no idea before um, uh, before reading this book that that had actually been enshrined in legislation. I was very familiar, as I guess a lot of us are, of that um, that historical adoption of the you know the generic he that you know the idea of like mankind supposedly representing women as well and the use of he as a sort of generic supposed represent uh, representation of women and men but that was actually enshrined within an act of parliament to say that in all future acts of parliament for the, they use the reason or excuse of brevity um, that 
he will be will be used to represent everybody. So um, so again, how interesting that when it uh, that that obviously when it suits men, we you know we are all supposed to use um, the male pronoun. But now, if it suits other men who want us to pretend that they're women, then we have uh, so we are there's a they attempt to coerce us into using these pronouns in a different way. So I thought that was all that history is all absolutely fascinating and very pertinent to all the question of pronouns today. So um, and just another couple of things to say um, in terms of the historical development of the language that she um, then goes on to talk about what she calls prescriptive grammars. Um, and the ways in which um, the men in power wanted to standardise, this is like after the Norman Conquest, and actually this is, I think she talks about the early grammarians as sort of, you know, around about the, uh, way after the Norman Conquest, around about the time of the um, 17th century, with the development of dictionaries and grammars. And um, she says that, obviously, English had lots of, different dialects it wasn't the kind of standard English that we that we know today of course we still have different dialects but um there wasn't this um standardized sort of notion of English and that as always the questions of language were intimately connected to um uh, questions of power and that um men in uh had a political interest in this establishing um, the linguistic status of English in relation to the status of other European languages as, as they were um, developing as well. So there was this de desire, which she says is the desire for linguistic control that was intimately bound up with de the desire for power. And so what you see in the 17th century onwards is the development of what she terms prescriptive grammars so they were written by these kind of I don't know scholarly men um or, <laughs> or charlatans as the uh take your pick um who developed uh these sets of rules about how English works and how English is to be used and basically what she says that is really quite amusing is that um that the grammars that they developed actually did not fit at all. Um, they didn't actually reflect how English was used. They didn't reflect the um, the kind of the development of its own grammar. They were taken from ancient uh, Latin and Greek, and then basically, so they were those grammars. The the men studied those grammars and then just imposed them on Middle English to to form the um, rules that, of English. And she she explains how um, how they didn't fit by giving two uh, I think again for those of us who were brought up you know with quite sort of you know traditional lessons about grammar I think it's quite amusing. The first is about the the split infinitive that you know there's we have this rule in English that we're not supposed to split the um, uh, to split the infinitive so you know the classic Star Trek thing of to boldly go we're not supposed to do that because it's split in the infinitive but obviously because the infinitive in the English language is made up of two words like you know to walk or to run or whatever 
of course we can say to quickly walk or to you know suddenly run or whatever it's it's very easy and there's no reason why we shouldn't split it the only reason why we have this rule about the split infinitive is because the infinitive in latin is one word it doesn't have um uh it doesn't have these the two so you know like ambulare would be to walk and you can't split that so then we have this imposition of of this rule of um, not splitting the infinitive instead it was totally made up and just imposed um imposed upon us um and and then she goes on to look at tenses and she looks at um the fact that english has modal verbs which express all kinds of different degrees of certainty and obligation so instead of having just a simple future tense like i will she gives the example of eating pizza of i will eat pizza we've got all these different ways of expressing i will eat pizza i would eat pizza i shall eat pizza i should eat pizza i could eat pizza you know all of these which have all these subtle uh, variations of degrees of certainty or obligation and she says because we have these modal verbs um the mapping ma mapping of the latin future tense onto english just doesn't work but that's but that's the tense that um but it's the latin grammar that has been mapped onto english in terms of uh, by these prescriptive grammarians to try and create these rules that actually don't don't sit very comfortably with with the language as it had developed so why does she talk about any of this what's this got to do with um you know the oppression men's oppression of women so she says she talks about all of this to illustrate how thoroughly men have controlled not only specific elements of the development of english structure but the way we understand its structure as well patriarchal grammars these prescriptive grammars justify descriptions of language as men as men would have it and she says that the rules of grammar turn out to be as dubious as the received women about women that we hear here every day and she says that that's no accident because men perceive language and women both as unruly objects that they must tame and control and then i think i spoke last time about how she goes on to talk about the metaphors um that men use to describe language and to describe women and the way that those are so connected basically by seeing language as an instrument that delivers meaning and women as a kind of instrument to be acted upon uh, by men um so i'm going to jump ahead a little bit to um uh what she says about the um about it's a bit hard to avoid using terms like gender because that's the term that is that's used in linguistics but um chapter four is titled the sex of nouns and this is where she talks about uh grammatical gender um the classification of nouns by gender in indo-european languages and she says uh she um sort of differentiates between those languages that have and for those of us who studied i don't know modern european languages at school um we will remember 
you know, La Maison or La Table, La Table or, you know, whatever. Um, oh, is it Le Table? I can't even remember now. Il Table. Le... <laughs> I can't remember. Is it masculine? Um, so obviously it, it was quite a, a new thing for us uh, native English speakers to then be learning that words like house and table and, you know, whatever chair um, have what's termed a grammatical gender because within the English language, on the whole, we have we use in in linguistic terms we use so-called natural gender, which is the term that means um, we we used uh, specifically sexed nouns and pronouns for things that relate to actual biological males and females. You know, like animals or humans or um uh yeah or particular roles i don't know like mother etc um so what she says um what she says about this um let me read what i'll put here um so what she says about this um development and understanding of grammatical gender is that it has served to um to convey the idea that language is inevitably gendered or sexed so she says um as one might expect talking about grammatical grammatical gender as one might expect, when sex terms become defining categories in a grammatical description, sexual dimorphism, sexual dimorphism and heterosexuality are imposed on linguistic phenomena and become the filter through which these phenomena are perceived and interpreted. So she's saying that these, um, that these, uh, this kind of classification through sex or gender of um, of a whole kind of you know, linguistic system means then that this has a kind of a sense of inevitability about it that um, and we can see actually she cites some uh, linguists talking about you know the sort of puzzlement of say why a word like war is uh you know um la guerra or la guerre is feminine why you know uh, speculating and theorizing over why a word like war would be feminine and why other words that you might expect to be um feminine are actually masculine all this kind of thing and basically what she exposes is that it's all just completely built on sand because the um the word gender originally is derived from the word genus in in latin which simply means a class or a category it it was not used to signify sex it did not mean sex and she traces back the um the use of um of the term gender as meaning sex back to um, an ancient Greek called Protagoras. Let me just find this quote because, it, again, it's it's just so fascinating the way in which these things that are kind of just we just take as given. Um, 
are often just as a result of some kind of historical quirk. So what she says here is that um, uh, from its beginnings in classical grammars, the label gender was misconstrued, misapplied and misinterpreted primarily because Protagoras, the fifth century BC sophist credited by Aristotle with its, um, with its description, chose the Greek equivalents of the English adjectives masculine and feminine, and the category neuter seems to have been added later, when he identified the noun classes of Greek. So it seems to be what she's saying is that um, he just seemed to choose this choice of feminine and masculine without, uh, no one's been able to, um, she says, I do not know what motivated Protagoras to choose the adjectives feminine and masculine to describe noun classifications in Greek. And I haven't read a historian of, of grammars who has asked. So that's quite mind blowing to me that, um, that all of this idea of these masculine and feminine grammatical genders, it seems to be this like random, random thing that was at the whim of someone called Protagoras and no one really knows why, um, why he chose them. So as Penelope says, the English grammatical term gender is derived from Latin genus, from the Greek, which means race, class or kind. It did not mean sex, biological or grammatical, um, as, as she goes on to show, um, as, has, as has been observed. Um, but she says that Protagoras's choice of feminine and masculine to, to label noun, classi noun classifications seems to have had a hypnotic effect on virtually every grammarian since. And they have been, um, as I say, kind of theorizing why some words are feminine and others are masculine and um, how, you know, trying to find explanations for this and why things, you know, why things have, have been uh, sort of gendered or sexed in this way. And it just seems that there isn't any kind of known reason. And it seems to have been at the whim of this guy, Protagoras. And it's just been, it's quite remarkable that that is so, it, it's just been allowed to continue really without it being, with it, without it being sort of questioned or, or examine, examined in any kind of, in, in any kind of depth. So again, it's a bit like the um, the question about pronouns. I think the the kind of historical dimension to this really um, it it just contributes so much to our thinking about language because it shows that so much of what is kind of really um, embedded and you know uh, 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 enshrined in the kinds of ideas about language, the grammars about language, and then all the everyday language that we use. Um, it just seems to be, yeah, like I say, um, built on sand. So those are some of the really interesting historical insights that she brings to bear um, in terms of the development of uh, patriarchal language. And then I'm just going to, in the last sort of 10 minutes or so, I'm going to go um, sort of uh, jump right to the end of the book or the, the latter part of the book, where she talks about the ways in which um, uh, 
grammar and syntax serve patriarchal interests and they um they do that in a number of ways and i think i did start to mention last last time her use of this uh, linguistic concept of dyxis which i should uh point out is spelled d e i x i s so it's that dyxis not dyxis it's dyxis um and uh dyxis is a linguistic term that is that is used to refer to words that serve the job of um, specifying or pointing to. So they should make meaning more precise. So an example of a dyctic term would be the definite article. So if I say um, the pencil, you know, um, can you pass me the pencil? It's not just any old pencil, it's a particular pencil. And I could also be more precise in saying, this pencil or that pencil or these pencils or those or I could actually just re refer if we once I've established what I'm referring to I could just use the word it to refer to um this particular pencil so dyctic words are things like this here that there anything that points and specifies a particular object or person or thing um but um also these uh, um dyxis can be used in a way to refer to something that isn't really specified or isn't really there and she calls this false dyxis um when a particular dyctic term has no identifiable referent and the example that she gives uh, really brilliantly is the use of the word it which is is something we all use all the time in our speech, often without being specific as to what it is actually referring to. So she gives the example example of um, how it is often used to refer to um, heterosexual intercourse, penis and vagina intercourse. So things like um, bumper stickers, um, what just like, Oh God, all these awful things like roofers do it higher, something like that, where it is taken as a euphemism. So the reader or the listener has to fill in what this um, reference is. Um, and she gives all kinds of different examples where it is used as a, uh, she calls it the dummy it, where it's a full stiaxis because it seems to be referring to something specific, but that is not anything that's actually defined. So, for example, if someone's if someone comes into the room and says it's over, we don't know. We can infer what it means there, but we don't actually know. She refers to the idea of um, children playing tag. You know, you're it, or if someone saying I've had it. So we use this a lot without it being without being really precise and specific as to what um, to what meaning. We give it, and she looks at the uh, particular context that she discusses. And I know I did start to discuss this last time. Um, was a particular radio program about um, a father-child, in this case, father-daughter rape. Um, that where she looks at the use of the word "it," and she looks at how um, how everybody in the radio program including the rapist 
the reporter, the wife of the rapist, the child victim of, of the rapist, all used this word it um, and the way in which the word it obscured what exactly the man had been doing and who was responsible for the action. So things like the the victim of the rape saying it started when I was 10. Um, and then I think the reporter saying to the man, why does it keep happening? So often again, we see this I, this um, combination with the verb to happen, um, you know, like it happened or something happened to obscure exactly what, not just what happened, but exactly what somebody did. Um, and she, within her analysis of this programme, she then goes on to reframe uh, or um, rewrite the sentences, the quotes from the programme, filling in exactly what that word it obscures. And it makes it very, very stark exactly the way in which it invisibilizes the um the actions of the man and and the fact that it was him that was um that was uh yeah, responsible for performing them. So that's the use of the dummy it. And then the following chapter, and maybe um this is one of the things that Julia Penelope is, is best known for in terms of her um linguistic analysis. It's an absolutely brilliant chapter on agency deletion. So the deletion of the the person or people, usually men, or actually I think in the examples she gives, always men who are responsible for particular actions through the use of the passive voice. And the classic uh, example that she gives and that I gave last time is this move from the active uh, structure of uh, sentence structure of John beat Mary, where you've got the agent, the verb, and then the um, person that it was done to, through to um, Mary was beaten by John, and then Mary was beaten with the agent being removed altogether. Um, so once you put an active sentence into the passive voice, obviously it places the emphasis on whoever the action has been done to. And of course, then it allows us to, if we want to, to remove the agent um, altogether. Now, she does say that sometimes agency deletion is quite reasonable. Sometimes it's inevitable. If, for example, something is being reported when um, when we don't actually or when the writer doesn't actually know who is responsible for a given action. Now, you know, sometimes it's inevitable when we know something's happened, but we don't know. Um, who's who's responsible um but as as she goes on to demonstrate with numerous examples agentless passives are used far more than just in those scenarios they are they are so common and often we use them ourselves without without even realizing because they are they're, they're so commonly used and she talks about all the different um patriarchal motivations as to why, um, as to why this uh, that men might use or men might might have um, naturalized this construction in in our language. So she talks about how the use of the passive voice 
um, can be used to appeal to um, to ideas of authority. So let me see, Pedro Thornide. Um, so I'm just going to go through these different examples to to I think hopefully give a sense of how common they are. So the appeal to authority. Um, The authority could be, um, you know, the idea of sort of uh, divine authority or di divine intention. So this kind of romantic notion that we've heard that it was a love that was meant to be. So obviously that's putting it in the passive form. But who like who meant it to be? The only uh, possible answer would be some sort of divine intention or um, as again, we've probably seen in all kinds of um, archaic biological textbooks. Woman is intended for reproduction. Um, she has been appointed to take an active part in the reproduction of the race. So these ideas, so this idea of using the this use of the passive form to reinforce ideas of um, some kind of ultimate authority. In this case here, divine, but it could also be um, institutional authority or other forms of sort of universal authority. So the passive form. Um, the passive form could be used um, to serve those purposes. Very often it's used to, as um, Penelope says, to uh, protect the guilty, to deny or obscure the responsibility, as in the um, scenario that I gave before of, the, of John beating Mary. So we commonly see um, and hear the passive form being used um, uh, to to kind of draw a veil over who's responsible for a certain decision or a certain action and um, to obscure the the, um, the power relationship of that. Um, it, they can, it can also be used to serve um, men's claims to some kind of pseudo objectivity. So things like the way in which, um, again, I'll just remember this from school days, like the scientific scientific method where you weren't allowed to say, Oh, I lit the Bunsen burner. You had to say the Bunsen burner was lit, or you know this um, uh, this I um construction of some kind of objectivity that these things were done without any kind of human agency, but they were simply um simply done, and th therefore the the result of that is somehow objective and beyond um it it can't possibly show any kind of like bias or human intervention and she says that the the um pseudo objectivity uh motive serves to um help the writer turn the most absurd opinions into facts that then it becomes quite hard uh to, to challenge and then following on from that is the the use of the passive in terms of um, trying to garner a kind of basically some kind of intellectual pretension, trying to garner some kind of weight to your argument by saying things like it is known or it is thought or it is understood um, uh, to, before your sentence. So you kind of uh, try to marshal all of these other great thinkers much like yourself who have all kind of argued this before you so you can uh, claim this um, some kind of authority. Uh, she also talks about how the passive can be used and this is something I think really that we want to be very 
aware of as women and as feminists um that that actually in terms of um a victim's perspective on something that has that someone else uh, someone else has done to to them that that it can often be much more acceptable to listeners to talk about things in the passive voice so she gives an example um of a woman saying you wonder how the power you once had was taken away from you and she talks about how there um who's taken away the power is eliminated but also the victim isn't talking about her or the woman isn't talking about herself in the first person so she's kind of abstracting it to um uh to also erase herself from the scenario as well instead of saying i wonder how that man took my power from me you wonder how the power you once had was taken away from you so these are the kinds of things which you give so many different examples of um of uh the use of the passive in ways that um that often would as i say are so normalized in the language that we wouldn't necessarily uh be aware of how how frequently we're using them so i seem to have lost my thing oh, yeah. um so just to oh we're nearly up to time just to finish then um the other use of passives that I think are really, really um, are really important to be aware of is when the passive is taken an ex to sort of an extra level where an active verb is is rendered into an abstract noun, which even more obscures who did what who did what. So something like um, he destroyed the evidence or they destroyed the village becomes the destruction of the evidence or the evidence, yeah, the destruction of the evidence or the destruction of the village. So we have in, in place of that active verb that shows the agent, we have this abstract noun. And that's something obviously we see all the time in terms of things like domestic violence, uh, sexual violence, gender-based violence, this, in, this um, kind of abstract noun of she was a victim of domestic violence where the male agency uh, and his uh, specific actions and uh, modes of control are abstracted into this um, into this noun that then becomes a topic in and of itself, uh, quite divorced from the original um, clarity of that the active um, of that active form. So it's. <laughs> Sorry, once again, I spoke for too long. I think we're pretty much up to time. Um, I don't know if it's, if someone else is going to, um, I don't know who's actually going to uh, end the session. Joe, Joe is, <laughs> I don't know how, how we're going to end it now. Joe, are you going to end the session? Because I just realised that we're almost up to time. No, everybody's going to do it.